Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on Nerdcast, we're going to talk hurricanes and hurricane politics. As Florence arrives, Donald Trump can't resist pouring more fuel on his feud with Puerto Rico over how the administration handled Hurricane Maria there last year. Plus, what people who want to run for president might have learned from the primaries in 2018. Uh, We're going to have a nice political conversation ahead about uh, big picture, what we learned uh, at the 2018 primaries wrap up and uh, look ahead a little bit to the next primary contest already peeking around the corner, even before the 2018 general elections. A reminder to our listeners before we get started to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us and write a review. And one more note before we begin, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, September 13th. So it's all up to date as of then. No Andrew Cuomo, Cynthia Nixon primary results, though, arriving a little bit too late for us this week. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests here with me in the studio. We have Charlie Matessian, senior politics editor. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Scott. And uh, back with us after too many weeks away, Nancy Cook, our White House reporter. Nancy, how have you been? I've been good. I missed you guys. We've missed you, too. Well, time for our first data point uh, that you'll you'll help us unpack here. Nearly 3,000. That was the government estimate of the death toll from Hurricane Maria last year. It was recently revised uh, after after a government study. And it's relevant today because we're going to talk about the, the politics of hurricanes and the way the government responds to them. President Donald Trump on Thursday cast doubt on the official death toll, again, that his government commissioned, saying that when he left the island last year, there were only, quote, six to 18 deaths. In fact, I'm just going to read from his tweet. 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from six to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by much. Then a long time later, they started to report really large numbers, like 3,000. Next tweet. This was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible when I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. So, uh, Nancy, you you just wrote a story the other day about how the the positive stuff that Donald Trump could tout about his his presidency, namely how the economy is performing, whether or not you you think he has a lot to do with it, it's doing reasonably well right now. How he just can't help himself. He stepping on it every which way. Th- yeah. This I think is potentially the worst. Like the worst thing he said. And and he said a lot of bad things. I, I mean, I don't know if it's the worst. It's like, you know, who can remember it changes week to week. But this is definitely like the low point of the week. I mean, when I read that tweet, I thought White House aides like they just must be freaking out because, um, you know, I was at the White House yesterday and they were taking such pains with this hurricane stuff to make it look like they were prepared. You know, having FEMA briefings, sending out multiple statements about who the president had talked to. You know, he talked to Republican governors. He, you know, talked about it in a speech last night at a Congressional um, Medal of Honor ceremony. Like, they were really trying to project this image that they were on top of the hurricane stuff and they were going to respond to it. And Trump has always really been dogged by this reputation that 
he's not great at thinking about people beyond himself. And, you know, we saw that. Yeah, empathy. We saw that earlier this week when he got off Air Force One in uh, Pennsylvania, where he was supposed to give remarks um, in remembrance of 9-11. And as he walked on the plane and walked towards supporters, he sort of made a cheering gesture. And people were critical of that because they thought, well, this is really not the not the right tone for this kind of very sad event. And and this is sort of another instance of that. Like, is this do you really want to bring conspiracy theories to a potential huge natural disaster that will displace, you know, thousands of people and, you know, could ruin property, could people could die from it. Um, and, and this is sort of the latest instance of Trump showing a lack of empathy and also just also just trying to create his own reality, which he he frequently tries to do and and sort of doubling down on things that we know are not necessarily true, but him trying to convince the public of otherwise. Charlie. Yeah, I think this is just another example of, you know, the narcissism getting in the way of being able to govern effectively. You know, it's all the things Nancy uh, mentioned. And, you know, what it reveals to us is, you know, things we know already, how thin-skinned he is, uh, that he is willing to uh, prevaricate, uh, stretch the truth, call it whatever you want, lie um, about statistics to to paint a better picture of it. I mean, it doesn't even make sense, the tweet he made. I mean, given the devastation wrought by that uh, hurricane on that island, uh, really, did anyone think there were six deaths? I mean, it's it's ludicrous. And the idea that Democrats were peddling this, this was the, the result of uh, very thoroughgoing uh, news reports that came came up with a, a much better number. And I think, you know, the, that kind of extreme reaction that we saw in the tweets today, not only uh, probably had aides screaming into their pillows when they saw that this morning, uh, I think it reveals he understands how important hurricane politics are. He's a very visual politician. I mean, that's the one thing that he does well as a politician is he understands optics and he understands how bad the optics are of uh, hurricane politics. He saw it with Katrina. And, you know, this is a, a when it comes to hurricanes, it is one of the top leadership opportunities, top opportunities you have as a politician to show strength and leadership and empathy. We've seen politicians over and over, not necessarily make their careers, but really cut a high profile and uh, really expand their stature within their states from uh, very effective and efficient hurricane uh, assistance. You saw Chris Christie do that in, in New Jersey. You saw Jeb Bush do that in uh, Florida over and, and over and, and over. On Twitter this morning, I happened to notice the, the guy who ran Bush's hurricane response in in Florida was giving Trump an earful. I mean, as much as you know, you can give anyone an earful on Twitter. Um, I saw he, that. He, he said, doesn't... shut up, Mr. President. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, it goes to show that Trump understands the high stakes here and he's a little bit rattled by it. And I think that's why uh, he responded that way. But it's so funny because last night at the White House, there was this congressional Medal of Honor ceremony. And just to paint the picture, it was like you could tell White House aides were just desperate to keep him on message. And it was this reception in the East Room, you know, all these veterans. And they had two, instead of like a normal teleprompter, there were two huge flat screen TVs. I'm talking like 60 inch. And there were two of them. And the speech was on that. And there was a whole section on how prepared they were for a hurricane. And he said at one point, I thought this was so, this quote was so interesting in light of the tweet this morning. 
He said, you know, protection of life is the absolute highest priority, and that is what we're doing. It's called protection of life, so God bless everybody and be careful. And you you just felt like he was, at that moment, really preemptively trying to show that he was on top of it. And then this morning, it's like conspiracy theory about Puerto Rico. Um, And Puerto Rico is such a sensitive topic for him, too, because, you know, the governor there has been so critical of him. You know, he hates being criticized. It really puts him on the defensive, and it brings out his own worst instincts. And the the other thing that is important here is they understand that there are political implications for 2020. Uh, remember back in 1992 when what was it Hurricane Andrew that tore through? I believe so. Yeah, tore through Florida. Well, uh, that had a, a material impact on George H. W. Bush's reelection percentage in Florida. He won Florida pretty easily in 1988. He won it again in 92, I believe, but his either way, his margin was dramatically reduced. And at least a part of that was a result of the uh, the notion in South Florida that Hurricane Andrew response and recovery efforts were bungled by FEMA. This is something people remember for a long time, basically. <laughs> yeah, and, and certainly his son did. That's why Jeb went to the utmost uh, mm-hmm. during the – he had one year or I think there were five major hurricanes that, that blew through Florida and he was on it. Well, and there's been criticism, too, that like, you know, Trump, for instance, was very the Trump administration was very responsive to Hurricane Harvey, which was in Texas, while not being responsive to Puerto Rico's concerns. And so you're also there's also a question of like, you know, are they selectively responsible based on constituents, based on like who they think is supportive of them? And and this is sort of, you know, a chance for them to show that might not be the case, although these are, you know, the states in the South that could potentially be hit are uh, Republican leaning states. And uh, just a a little bit of a note on that, Politico completed an investigation of the federal response to last year's storms recently and found evidence that the Trump administration responded to the Texas uh, hurricane hit uh, faster with more resources uh, compared to Puerto Rico uh, after after it was hit a few weeks later. Uh, We're talking about helicopters deployed, uh, FEMA money approved uh, for victims, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, there's there's a lot tied up in that because – Puerto Rico being so far away from the mainland makes uh, makes things difficult as we as we talked about last year when when the recovery was uh, in place. But there's there's definitely uh, something to that. So Nancy, we've got um, Hurricane Florence currently bearing down on the Atlantic coast. There there are a couple other big storms lined up behind it. Can you tell us a little bit about what uh, what the administration has been doing? Um, this week uh, to to actually prepare, um, and in terms of the, the people in charge of actually preparing, as opposed to Trump's photo opportunities and and bizarre Twitter habits. Well, honestly, they seem a little disorganized. I mean, I was at the White House yesterday, and there was question about whether or not there was going to be a, a FEMA official was going to come over to the White House to give a briefing and sort of an update. And I was hearing like wildly different things depending on who I talked to. Um, you know, there's a question at this point, an investigation that uh, two of our Colleagues have just published this morning about a FEMA official potentially, you know, using cars, misusing government cars. You know, things seem a little bit uh, chaotic at this point. I mean, I feel like we'll have to see as it unfolds and how they're coordinating with state and local authorities and sort of what exactly FEMA is doing. But at this point, I would say the vibe, at least over at the White House, is one of trying to project a lot of strength and organization. But um, it seems a little bit chaotic behind the scenes. And we may not even know because now it's become so loaded as a result right. of those two, those tweets. Now everyone will be scrutinizing it. We know that the Trump uh, administration is is very uh, casual in 
in how it regards the truth and the facts of, of their response effort. And now it's become hyperpolarized because of the tweets. In fact, Senator Menendez from New Jersey, who's in a tougher than expected reelection um, campaign this year, tweeted back at Trump this morning. I don't know if you guys saw it. No. After Trump, after Trump's two Puerto Rico tweets, Menendez tweets back at him. You're right, Mr. President. The hurricane didn't kill 3,000 people. Your botched response did. Yikes. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of pressure on on state authorities too. We've seen just you know, in the TVs in the newsroom. We've seen the governors of North and South Carolina all over uh, TV over the last few days, imploring residents to clear the evacuation zones, asking them not to drive through water if they're uh, faced with that choice uh, when, once the storms do hit. Charlie, you spend a lot of time working with our reporters in Florida about politics down there, and and it, it's been interesting. The one of one of Trump's closest allies among elected officials in 2016 was Governor Rick Scott in Florida, who's now running for uh, Senate against uh, Democratic Senator Bill Nelson. But th- there's been a little more distance between he and Trump ever since he, he started making this next political run. And it, it just seems like the, the distance gets farther and farther when you consider how Scott has reacted to uh, uh, last year's hurricanes and in turn the attention he's paid to uh, Puerto Rico, uh, not just the Puerto Ricans who have come to Florida since then, but the visits he's made there and the extreme attention he's he's paid to this issue. Right. And, and there's a distinct difference in how Rick Scott treated President Trump in 2017 versus how Rick Scott treated Donald Trump in 2018. In 2017, he was much more comfortable spending time with Trump. Um, and now as he moves and pivots toward a tough Senate race in, in 2018, he's much more reticent. He doesn't get uh, – Trump came down there, for example, for a visit. He didn't show up to, and Scott didn't go to the fundraiser. Uh, Trump made another visit to Florida and no pictures were taken because uh, of the way they structured the visit. So he's sort of subtly getting some distance because he understands that this is a, a swing state and it probably doesn't benefit him. Now, Trump's not terribly underwater in Florida. In fact, there are some polls where he's actually at about 50 percent. So it's not a disaster state for him, but at the same time, it's competitive enough that I think Scott wants to get some distance from him. But here's, to me, the, the biggest problem that Scott faces right now as a result of those idiotic tweets this morning. The biggest problem he faces is Scott is unusually strong among uh, Hispanic voters. And part of, and you see this in the polls and the crosstabs uh, of what's coming out of Florida these days. Part of that is the Cuban American population in Miami, which, you know, the older generation tends to be Republican. But Scott also is doing surprisingly well among the burgeoning Puerto Rican community in the Orlando area. And that is where all the growth is among Hispanic voters in, in Florida. And so... Here, here you have Governor Scott in what could be the most expensive Senate race in the country this year, doing surprisingly well, stunningly well against incumbent Democrat Bill Nelson among Puerto Rican voters. And what happens? Trump comes in and just lights the place on fire. And so if you're Rick Scott's campaign right now, you are just freaking out about what just happened this morning. I think we, we probably don't spend a ton of time on, on Trump's tweets, which I think is the way to go. But I'm just I'm just stunned at how remarkable uh, this one is and how uh, against like against the instincts of any like politician or or honestly like human being <laughs> um, say, saying something like that at, at a moment like this would be. Well, it's just like so unbecoming for the leader of the country. Um, and I feel like I don't feel like that's a sort of super biased thing to say. I think that's just a fact. Like it's just 
Um, it's not a very presidential thing to do. But that's always, that's he's always struggled with that. If you remember, his inauguration speech wasn't really about bringing the country together. It was very divisive and dark. And, and he's never sort of, it's always doubling down on like him or his agenda or the legitimacy of his presidency or, you know, being defensive about his own skills rather than being able to console people or have empathy or bring people together. And also, I, I think in the inner circle, no one's ever been able to uh, have his ear. No one with any real talent or no one uh, who cared about things like that, who could talk about maybe the majesty of the office and the need to, to appear presidential and stand above things. I mean, uh, you know, one, one thing I've always noticed about the team around Trump, and this isn't everyone. I mean, there are, a, you know, a few people of, of high skill, but like you guys know this from covering uh, the 2016 campaign. I mean, th- that campaign was known for having a lower level of, uh, of talent because he, nobody would sign up with him at first. And that was certainly the true in the administration. I mean, you saw that with Sean Spicer. Again, uh, I mean, I think that's fact by now that Sean Spicer was, you know, part of the problem was he was just terrible at his job. He was not very good. I mean, there are a number of outstanding Republican communicators. You know, we've seen them in other administrations. We deal with them all the time. Uh, Spicer, I think, was was one of the worst ever. And well, Trump didn't listen to Spicer. Exactly. Either. So you have him. You can't communicate. You know, you can't communicate through the office, but also in the inner, inner circle. It's not. It's not uh, staffer after staffer after staffer of exceptional skill. It's a lot of weak links that are close to him, and no one can talk to him. Well, yeah, Ben White and I reported the story this week, which you brought up earlier about how Republicans keep saying to him, like, just talk about the economy. Like, the economy is great right now. It's, like, objectively amazing. Very hard for Democrats to tack Trump on that. And White, you know, I talked to a bunch of White House aides for the story, and they were like, look, yeah, we want him to talk about the economy, too. But, like, it's just futile at this point to try to control or corral him. And that was so telling to me that, you know, it's not like people are trying to slip stats to him or just like urge him to talk about it. They're sort of like, he's going to do what he's going to do. And we're just going to, you know, that's that's the piece that we've made being here in the White House. Imagine this scenario where, OK, say it's not Trump. It's just a standard uh, Republican president going for reelection. You'd be thinking about something like a 1984 blow style blowout if it was if it was just a garden variety Republican president who had a garden variety four years you've got a, a roaring economy you had a, you know a powerful message that you could convey to, to the base and also you know sort of embellish it a little and uh, and, and focus on the, the positives of the, of the tax cuts uh, you could you would be extremely well positioned the opposition party the Democrats don't really have a message of their own uh, and so had it not been Trump this uh, another Republican president would have been cruising to uh, re-election, and I think uh, Republicans would not be poised to get hit with the the wave that they're, they look very likely to get hit with in November. Hmm. That's an interesting point. I think just going back to Nancy's point, the one thing I'll, I'll say before we uh, wrap up this segment is that with regard to touting the economy, um, it would probably be a lot easier for not just Trump, but the rest of the White House if, if they hadn't spent the last year and a half uh, wasting their credibility on any number of issues like the, the crowd sizes at his inauguration or the or Charlottesville or I mean run down the laundry list right it's just it's it's not just that Trump won't focus on it it's that he 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 has given people very few <laughs> reasons to listen uh, uncritically to anything that, well, that and because he himself is also consumed by the Russia investigation and you know talking about Hillary Clinton and retelling the story of his election like you know one senior administration official told me privately he doesn't even really talk about the economy um, because he's so obsessed with these other things right now and so you know I, I feel like the tweets in some ways 
while people are like, oh, you know, don't pay attention to it, or Kevin has it this morning or this week in a briefing, he's the head of the Council on Economic Advisors. He was like, look, I don't control the president's tweets. You know, everyone in the White House says that, but the tweets all, all actually do offer like a lot of insight into what he's thinking at a particular moment. Mm-hmm. And the tweets lately have been about, you know, the NFL controversy, the Russia stuff, the hurricane, you know, all these other things. And I feel like that gives you a good roadmap of where he is hour to hour. All right. Nancy, thank you so much for dropping in to, to talk us through that. Oh, thanks. Great to be here. All right. And uh, good luck to, to everyone in North and South Carolina and, and everyone else who's in, in the path of these big storms uh, coming up over the weekend. All right. We are going to leave segment one there. We have uh, Charlie coming along with us for our, our next data point, which is 54. 54 days remain until Election Day 2018. That's relevant because we have just, just yesterday, wrapped up the federal primary season. We've, of course, got one more state primary tonight uh, happening. A little too late for the Nerdcast to cover the the New York governor's race and the other state races. But every uh, Senate race and House race and every other governor's race, for that matter, the primaries are all wrapped up and we've uh, got our nominees and we can look forward to the 2018 general elections. But we're going to have a lot of time to discuss that over the next few weeks. We also think that the 2018 primaries have given us some really instructive lessons about 2020, and especially among Democrats who are going to be choosing their nominee to take on President Trump in a couple years. And so we're going to look way, way ahead uh, to the next presidential race and what we learned about the Democratic Party as they went through this primary process in 2018 and look ahead to the next one. And uh, on Skype to help us size it up is Politico's national correspondent, Natasha Karecki. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us from Chicagoland. Thanks for having me. So, Natasha, let's let's take stock big picture. Uh, this is a question you pose and answer in, in your story this week. What are the lessons that we've learned this year from the primaries, especially looking at the, the early states that, that are going to vote at the beginning of the 2020 presidential cycle as, as Democrats look to, to pick someone to take on Donald Trump. And we're talking Iowa, we're talking New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada. Well, one of the big takeaways is a, a pretty simple one, and that's Democrats want to win. They're sick of losing. And what we saw in these states is that even if the electorate was traditionally more left-leaning, they were willing to forego that in favor of a more centrist candidate who could show they'd win in the fall. So in a lot of these statewide races, they didn't follow a pattern of Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton aligned candidates, but those who had more of a message that resonated with them and a solid campaign operation. I mean, that seemed to be important to people, Um, candidates who could raise money, who had a ground game, local endorsements, they were up on TV, that kind of thing. And we really saw that play out, I think, in New Hampshire, um, in Nevada. Harry Reid's endorsement went a long way in, in that gubernatorial race as well as down ballot races, um, and certainly in Iowa and, and elsewhere. That's a really interesting point. So, I mean, it, it kind of goes counter to uh, some of the stuff we've grown to expect in not just Democratic politics, but politics in general about the the, the role of these kind of old uh, benchmarks, right? The The endorsements, the fundraising, things like that. Right. I mean, typically this wouldn't be a takeaway that would that would it would just seem obvious. Right. But because of what we were seeing so much across the country with insurgents winning and kind of getting all the excitement behind them, low budget campaigns, um, and, and that those were the people that the electorate was was going for in some of these states. I mean, it's, especially if you look at Iowa, for instance, um, you know, it was like Fred Hubble, who is 
definitely not a firebrand or the most exciting candidate, um, just personality-wise. Um, but he had a really solid operation. He spent a ton more than all of all of the other candidates combined, um, and you know, and and he he won. Um, so so I, I think what you're seeing is, you know, if you look at the Iowa electorate in particular, and we mentioned this in the story, I mean, they're just they're just tired of losing every single race they have. I mean, look at their legislature, their 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 governor, the two U.S. senators. It's Republicans across the board. So you know, some of these, some some of the electorate was showing or showing signs of you know just being a little looking for the pragmatic candidate who who demonstrated they had a strong campaign, they had a message, and you know they had money and and, and had organization and and could win statewide in November. That's really interesting. Charlie, I want to pose a question to you. I mean, how how much of this do you think has to do with the fact that in this sort of situation, in a statewide race or a congressional race or something like that, it is easier for an establishment-oriented candidate to raise money, and money is still an important factor in these races. And when you look at a presidential campaign, often we've seen a lot of evidence now over the past 10, 20 years that on a, a national scale, when you get an insurgent candidate, they mint money in a way that they often just don't at the state or congressional level. Uh, the Barack Obama raised a ton of money. He raised over $100 million in 2007 when uh, the, the first time that Hillary Clinton ran for president was favored. In 2015, Bernie Sanders raised a ton, a ton, a ton of money. Uh, I don't remember exactly at what point he crossed Hillary Clinton in terms of money raised, but Bernie Sanders was not a, a low-budget insurgent uh, campaign. It was an insurgent campaign, but it was a high-budget insurgent campaign. And so, uh, Char- Charlie, do, what, what do you think? How how big a role do you think that the that that played in in some of what we've seen in 2018? And could it break again in 2020 when it maybe it would be easier for for an insurgent type to? get that national attention and money. Yeah. I mean, I think the internet era changed uh, a great deal. Of, I, mean, I mean, it changed everything in, in terms of the, the mechanics of, of running campaigns. And uh, there, there's no better example of that than in the, the online fundraising and the, and the role that it plays in campaigns. Now, you see every big name 2020 prospect is already building out their digital infrastructure. And you can see it in the investments in, in uh, Kamala Harris, uh, for example. And you see that everyone learning example from Bernie. And one of the examples we've learned over the last decade or two is that the campaign that sort of masters the emerging technology or discipline is the one that it advances. I mean, Howard Dean was the first to really, I think, uh, grasp the organizing ability uh, that the internet gave you. And uh, then uh, Obama, uh, I think, built on that. And then we saw Bernie sort of mastering the, the online fundraising. And I think it plays a bigger role on the Democratic side than on the Republican side, because on the Republican side, they you know, history shows that they tend to go with the dependable, the inevitable front runner. They like the steady candidate, the candidate who paid their dues, the Bob Doles, you know, the... the Re- Recent uh, history accepted. Right. Well, yes, that, that, <laughs> that's where things change in 2016. But Democrats uh, over the years have been much more readily... Uh, they, they've been much more willing to fall in love with long shots and insurgents, whether it was Jimmy Carter or Billy or uh, Bill Clinton in 1992, uh, and, and or Barack Obama in 2008. And so they sort of have a soft spot uh, for the insurgents, even if they don't always go with the insurgents. And the interesting thing is that, you know, when it comes to Democrats and their their insurgent candidates and their long shot candidates have been their winners. I mean, nobody thought Jimmy Jimmy Carter 
was going to be viable when, when he first started thinking about it. Bill Clinton was buried up until probably his New Hampshire performance. Barack Obama, no one thought he was going to win in the beginning, yet they all won. And then look at what happened when they went with the inevitables, when they went with John Kerry or Al Gore or Hillary Clinton. They all failed in the general. Natasha, what's your take on, on this question? I think that's a really good point. And I, I mean, I think notwithstanding the results of, of these four early states, mm-hmm. um, I still think if you go back to the question of who do you want in, in, in 2020, I mean, it does seem like we're still seeing an electorate that's like, you know, they've had a shock to their system with Trump getting elected in 16 and, you know, turnout spiking. Um, and, and what people are getting excited about are people, are names that sort of drop out of the sky, um, new new candidates who, who want, because they're looking for change. And so if you look at the, the last two presidential elections, you know, 2008, 2016, people just wanted someone new who was going to bring change. And to, to that extent, I think someone who's seen as more of an assert, insurgent, more of an outsider, it probably has the advantage. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, you know, I the the point you made about turnout surging brings me back to something Steve Shepard said on on the podcast a few weeks ago that I thought was really smart. And that the, we've seen turnout surge in a lot of different places, but it we we've seen potentially different effects in some places. We've seen some races where uh, progressives have won on the back of maybe bringing out people who had never voted in 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 primaries before, kind of a latent. Uh, liberal base that that was finally engaged by by a candidate who was speaking to them, and then on the other hand, we've seen some maybe slightly more centrist candidates winning in situations where the the turnout surge was bringing out people who were just more um, you know more casually interested in politics or not casually interested in politics, but maybe less invested in partisan politics, right? There may be regular general election voters, but not regular primary voters. And we're potentially motivated by different things than what you would think about a, a partisan primary voter thinking about. And so I, I, I just thought that was a really interesting point and something to to keep in mind. Natasha, I, w- I want to pose the question of this segment to you in in kind of a reverse way now. Uh, looking at the, at the results in these early primary states, uh, as you were, put yourself kind of in in the headspace of some of the Democrats who who are thinking about running for president in 2020. And which of them do you think looked at, at these states that you were looking at and thought it's like, hey, this is a good sign for me? Um, that is an excellent question. Um, I mean, I think I think when you look at South Carolina, which is a really tricky state for Democrats right now, you know, you, you've had the party coming out and saying, hey, we need help. And I think the fact that Cory Booker is now going there, like, the, I mean, the day our story posted, he announced that, um, is it, something that he sees as a good thing for him. For Iowa, I think the fact that you have more of an establishment candidate who, you know, Hubble, who ended up emerging through there, I think you you can look at, like, uh, the Bullock types, um, like, more of the uh, pragmatic, centrist, candidates, not the real firebrand left, farther to the left progressives, um, might, might see Iowa as a, a good place for them to land and, and have hope there. And that's, uh, that's Steve Bullock, the Montana governor that, that uh, you're name, name dropping there. He's, he's made some interesting moves this year. We've seen him move to the left on guns. And uh, he's been talking a lot about campaign finance uh, and campaign finance reform, which is a uh, definitely a big issue, I think, in both parties right now. But we've definitely seen it play a lot on the, on the Democratic side in terms of uh, what people are 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 talking about, 
Natasha, what was your big takeaway from the, these early states and the primary results this year in terms of um, the, the the folks who we think of as potentially central uh, contenders, at least to start off? You know, if, if everyone were to jump in on January 1st, 2019, talking about Bernie Sanders, talking about Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden is is getting a lot of buzz, Kamala Harris, fo- folks like that. What um, you know, what what was their activity like, and 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 what what can they take away from uh, from what we've seen in these states? Well, you you've, you're already seeing um, you know strong support for Biden in the African American community in South Carolina, for instance. I mean, there's already some talk there about that's one of the reasons why Booker's trying to get in. You know, right now and, and sort of headline there, you you have a lot of people. As always, um, you see a lot of signs of different campaigns um, showing interest in Iowa. Um, Booker just sent some of his staff to to help with the midterm elections there. We've seen more evidence of that. Um, it, it, what's interesting with Iowa, as we all know, it's, it's played out this a lot this year, is that a lot of the candidates were staying away from Iowa um, just because, you know, they still have to follow their message of we need to win, you know, we need to win 2018 first. Um, and then you you have these like sort of outsider candidates like the Michael Avenatti's of the world who's like, you know what, I'm not going to play any games. I'm going to all these states. <laughs> um, and he's, he's spent more time in Iowa, I think, than any of these like really, you know, top tier big names like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. Um, he, he, he's already done a couple of major fundraisers there. Um, they keep asking him back. They're asking him to New Hampshire and South Carolina to speak and fundraise. So I, I think it's going to be um, a wide open, you know, wide open field and everyone's going to jump in. I'm curious as to what your reporting tells you about uh, this, you know, the prospects of this historically large field of 2020 women and what we learned from the early states about how women candidates were faring in those states. And, you know, what is, you know, who's turning out uh, in in the primaries? Like, what did we learn about the prospects of for people like Kirsten Gillibrand and Senator Gillibrand from New York, Kamala Harris out of California, Elizabeth Warren? What did you see? What you, What's the vibe? Well, I mean, the vibe was, um, you know, in these states, it sort of followed the, the the national trend line where women did well. There's a lot of enthusiasm, um, and, and they're, you know, in 2020, they'll be building off that momentum. Um, but, but I also thought what was interesting was, um, you know, in South Carolina, and we, and we mentioned this in the story, um, is the Democratic Party there is tracking. They can't quite track who is voting, you know, which party, but they, they do it by gender, um, they're saying in every legislative district in that state, state legislative district in South Carolina, there was more women registered to vote than men. So it was high as 14% more women in some cases hmm. in each of these districts. Um, so, you know, it's not just being a woman. Um, it's really speaking to women and, and making sure you're messaging in the right way and getting those those women over to you. That's a really interesting point. Um I, I wonder if maybe in a future conversation we should consider California one of these early states, given that they're trying to move up the calendar and they have such uh, they they send out their mail ballots so so far uh, in front of their uh, election day. But but we can we can table that discussion for for another time potentially <laughs> after the midterms. Uh, Natasha, thank you so much for uh, skyping in to join us and and talk us through this. I I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. All right, and uh, Charlie, thank you as always for being here. Scott, thank you. 
All right. Our producer this week is Jenny Ament with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thank you so much to all our listeners for tuning in this week. We will talk to you again next week.